Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Disclaimer, this is going to be a brief intro from me because I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm pretty snotty. I have used two loo rolls over the last probably 12 hours. I was sneezing all night, not going to uh, indulge you with my sneeziness. She's got the lurgy, or you've got one of the two C's, which is what I'm now referring to as COVID and Christmas, two of the things that we're worried about. (laughs) The funny thing is when you have a cold, you're like, yeah, I've got a cold, it's not COVID. It's like the default when you share your screen, don't judge me by my tabs. It's that kind of new thing that we we just... Yes. (laughs) And it's like if if you go somewhere and you cough, you just feel so bad, don't you? People look at you and you're like, it's okay, I don't have COVID, I've been doing my natural flows. Yeah. So... Anyway, we've got a really interesting episode coming up for you. Um, Before that, I just want to check in with Kate, who's had a little bit of time off. How was your lovely cabin? And a little shout out to Thrift Meadow and their beautiful cabin, the Khan, was absolutely gorgeous in Herefordshire. But it was, we were there the night of Storm Anwell. Anwell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, honestly, I feared, we were in, in the middle of nowhere, but surrounded by woodland. And I did fear for my life at a number of points throughout that night. That a tree might fall on the cabin. It was pretty horrendous, but it was lovely. And then I've had a lovely week off, although I have come on, A, to talk to you, but also because I'm on a study day today, I'm on, on doing the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing's Women's Health Conference, which has been super interesting, hearing about loads of new research into so many different aspects of women's health. So I'm really enjoying it. And also Kate P, the other YFJ team member, is on it as well today. So it's Good been stuff. nice to chat with her. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll be able to tell us more about it. No doubt you'll be sharing loads more fascinating stuff on your socials mm. and uh, it might factor in some of our content for 2022, which we've been we've been Absolutely. putting together. Because it's that mm. time of the year, isn't it? It's like, are you sorted for next year? Have you got your plans ready? I actually feel like I might be being a bit more organised at the end of this year for next year, which is quite exciting. Gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed because I'm so not organised this year at all well, for next year. Only in the fact that I've thought about making a plan. I haven't actually made a plan. So that's no, maybe I'm a bit further ahead. Anyway, enough of us. So as we're kind of just passing halfway through our series focusing on fertility issues in the workplace, all around the launch of Fertility Matters at Work, this upcoming conversation is talking about the NHS. And it's something that it's been a real learning curve for me. Obviously, you've got first-hand experience, haven't you, Kate? How long did you work for the NHS? Over 20 years I worked in the NHS. And Claire, who's one of the co-founders of Fertility Matters at Work, also was working in the NHS. And we were really keen to just highlight some of the issues that are affecting the UK's largest employer in terms of flexible work, in terms of the the sensitivity of what it feels like when you are working on the front line, whether you're a midwife, whether you are working in other perinatal or paediatric environments, mm. and you're dealing with fertility issues, it's obviously mm. going to have a huge impact. And it's something that we really wanted to try and, and, and capture in what the issues are in the workplace and and hope that by raising awareness of what can be done. Yeah, I agree. And I just think, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, that the NHS is our caring organisation. We deliver care to thousands and thousands and thousands of people every single day, yet they are probably one of the worst offenders when it comes to considering the well-being of their staff, particularly surrounding, as we'll hear, 
fertility. Well, have a listen. And as always, we'll put all the details of our guest in the show notes for you to find out more about how you can follow the work that she's doing and get more support if this is really relevant to you. So we're delighted to welcome to the Fertility Podcast, Kate Jarman, who is the Director of Corporate Affairs at Milton Keynes University Hospital and co-founder of the Flex NHS Twitter account campaigning for flexible working for all and better working lives in the NHS. And we were really keen to talk more with Kate about the issues that we hear from a lot of you about in terms of flexibility and support when it comes to dealing with the many struggles that we know we go through when we're trying to conceive. So Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the Fertility Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we'd love to start with you just telling us a bit more about the campaigning that you're doing with Flex NHS and the success of it before we talk more about the issues that you've been addressing. Yeah, of course. So we started uh, Flex NHS in November 2018 and uh, it was a a colleague now, a really good friend, Asha Cowie and myself, we met over Twitter, um, both of us um, blogging and tweeting about working motherhood um, and the sort of struggles and juggles of trying to make that work. Um, and we both talked about flexible working and, and our various uh, different experience with it and getting flexibility and also being able to progress whilst um, having a young family. Um, and both thought that actually there was a lot more that we could do in this space to get equity and parity with flexible working for, for, for everybody, really. So I'd gone to lots of different conferences, or I would say a lot, probably two or three, where um, really senior people in the, in the NHS had talked about flexibility and how important it was for them. And it was great to have that visible role modelling in what were quite small forums at that point, um, small kind of, you know, quite small um, groups um, of, of people talking about being able to go and do a school run or go and do a board meeting um, and pick up their kids afterwards or do a sports day. But it felt like there was a huge proportion of the workforce missing from that conversation. So actually, how do you do that as a healthcare support worker? How do you do that as a junior doctor? How do you do that as a newly qualified midwife? Um, and we felt that actually there was a lot we could do around elevating and amplifying the voices of all those staff, the sort of 1.3 million who didn't really have a lot of agency over their own time and diaries and who potentially found it quite difficult to get any flexibility in their lives for whatever reason. You know, it doesn't need to be around um, parenthood. Of course, it doesn't. It's a people issue, not a parent issue. Um, and so that's how the campaign was founded. And we've spent the last three years trying to do what we set out to do, which was amplify the voices of those um, staff who really want and need flexibility in their lives. Well, thank you for explaining that, Kate. We've um, on the podcast so far in this series, we've we've talked to the education sector to find out their experiences, and and actually they seem to be very parallel to what we're hearing about experiences with people in the NHS that teachers really struggle with that type of flexibility. And as the NHS is such a huge, massive employer in the UK, and I know that you've recently tweeted about retention within the NHS and workforce planning. And obviously, flexibility is an issue. So why do you think that an organisation that is so centred on a positive patient experience doesn't necessarily reflect this in their employee experience? There's probably multiple reasons really around the challenges to flexibility. I think that lots of organisations do embrace flexibility in different ways and potentially at different times in people's careers. I think what we are really interested in is, you know, saying actually we want to get people out of their training and we want to keep them in the NHS for 40 years and to have a retention policy that, you know, a strategy plan that can mirror people's lives over 40 years is actually quite challenging. People go through multiple different experiences. We won't share the same experiences policy makers won't share the same experiences and lived you know lived experiences of all those different people so 
I think probably at the heart of that retention plan needs to be a significant amount of engagement to talk to people about what matters to them, what makes a difference in their in their working lives, what keeps them at work, what keeps them happy at work. And we know flexibility makes a huge difference. It makes a difference because it enables people to manage their life alongside the career that they love. And I suppose for me, it's the, the answer is kind of simple, saying yes to flexibility, because actually it's, you know, enabling someone to manage a, a period in their life, perhaps. And sometimes we need more flexibility in our lives than we do at other points. Sometimes we give a lot more to work than actually, you know, maybe is asked of us. And certainly in, in the NHS, we know people go over and above working hours and hours and hours beyond their contracted hours. And actually, when they say to us, can we have a little bit back, then we have to be able to pre- be prepared to give that back and say yeah it goes both ways it's not just a one-way kind of take all you've got to give and we won't give you anything in return so I think there's a probably a maturity of conversation for organizations around how they trust their staff how they treat their staff there's a lot of work that we need to do with managers to enable them to feel empowered themselves to have those conversations often people we find want flexibility and this is probably really relevant to the conversation we're having today want flexibility at a point in their lives that might be really really difficult personally difficult for them might be really really personally emotional and taxing and hard and psychologically difficult and physically difficult and actually you know when flexibility is not a sort of normalized conversation in organizations so you can't just ask for flexibility for no reason then you have to ask for it with a reason and that reason is often really tough to talk about so we talk a lot about just normalizing the conversations around flex so you don't have to then come and say I need to now share with you the most personal parts of my life I need to show you you know all the things inside my heart and my head um, and for you to judge whether or not I'm worthy to have um, a flexible working pattern because that's enormously difficult for everybody. And the whole disclosure about the reason is something that we've talked about a lot with this when it comes to talking about fertility issues at work whether you want to or not is is down to you Um, and a lot of the conversations that we've been having with our community is that we we are hearing from a lot of nurses and midwives frontline staff who who don't feel supported in being able to have the conversations that they need like you've just described and also feeling that they are able to disclose if if they want to and I'm just wondering with the work that you're doing with with the Flex NHS campaign whether you feel this is changing as as quickly as as you'd hope it would. So I think pace of change is always an issue isn't it and of course we would like to see things change faster. There certainly has been a really significant policy change and NHS England's people plan has made flexibility from day one of employment a right and a contractual right that's changed people's terms and conditions and that came into effect in the middle of September this year. And that's really important because that means actually you can take a job and you're entitled to flexibility from day one. So that stops people sitting in jobs where they might have a flexible working arrangement already in place and they don't dare you know, move from that job and progress their careers because for fear of losing that flexible working arrangement. It also talks about making roles flexible by default. So um, it gives a, a, a real, a really significant steer to organisations to say, you need to be working a lot harder to make your roles flexible. That bit of the policy is slightly more nebulous around how organisations interpret that. But the day one right to flexible working is really important. On the kind of, the, I think there does absolutely still exist a sort of a moral bar around flexible working. And I think that's, That's a lot to do with um, how we value people's time. And I think there's a lot of judgment that goes into flexible working requests still around, you know, is does this meet the sort of moral bar? And that's really arbitrary, actually. And, you know, one that is completely in the hands of managers. And so that's the work that I think we really need to progress um, quickly is giving managers the information they need about flexible working um, 
enabling them to feel empowered around making positive, flexible working decisions. So saying, yes, my team is going to work flexibly and I'll help make that happen and I'll work with them to help make that happen rather than, you know, having someone come to them and say, you know, here's what I need. Please, you know, can I have it, please? And having to make a statutory request. So I think there's freeing up managers to sort of be able to do more feel more empowered um, and enable them in turn to empower their staff. But that's a really big cultural change for the NHS. So it's easy to say and it's extraordinarily hard to do because, you know, it's not how people have necessarily been trained. um, It's not how they themselves have experienced the NHS. There's that, you know, when people do stay in an institution like the NHS for a long time, the kind of, well, I had to do it that, that way. And so, you know, why does it need to be any different for you is really quite strong. So we need to break down all of that. And that will take time. That will take time to do. And just on that note, when you look at the jobs being advertised on the NHS website, it looks like there's like a good 90% of them still being advertised as full time rather than flexible or part time or job shared. So is it still a perception issue of what the jobs are? that people are then nervous to try and push forward these conversations. Absolutely. So I think there's definitely that. There's people are still very nervous about, well, you know, when should I ask for flexibility in in the recruitment process as if it's a sort of real negative um, thing. I think there's still a perception that, you know, full-time is best and part-time, you know, I say all the time to people, don't call yourself, I'm just part-time, you know, I'm less, even we call doctors less than full-time, you're less than something before you've even started, um, you know, and actually that's really negative. Um, and so we need to start thinking about you know how do we tackle those how do we get rid of those those sorts of that kind of stigma that exists without perhaps we us even realizing it's there and yes advertising jobs is flexible really important um we we are straight we're strange in the nhs in some ways because we've, we've got a, an nhs bank you know the bank um system of um of enabling hyper flexible work so we seem to be able to do both things in tandem and not bring them together so we've got actually if you can't you know you can't work like this as your substantive shift pattern if you want to work like that go and join the bank well that's just for me that is absolute madness so you can work flexibly on the bank but you can't in a substantive role we have to be able to get over those sorts of things that actually the bank is the answer to our our temp- our flexible working it isn't it's one answer and for some people it's great and it really suits them but for others it means they don't have any substantive employment rights and they can't have paid annual leave and they don't get paid maternity leave and all those things so you know we need to be able to to bridge that too um, and we've got some ideas on how that might happen around job shares and um, promoting part-time and different ways of working. Kate you mentioned about the NHS people plan that was that it was launched in September and I just kind of intrigued, really. How do you see this working when it comes to women's health and specifically fertility? Um, so I suppose the principles around flexibility in the people plan are that it's not, you know, and this is an interesting debate, actually, about whether it should be more specifically tied to life events or whether actually it's the right thing to do to untether it from life events and say flexibility is flexibility for whatever um, whatever reason. I think what we what we get into, though, is, is that sort of intersection between flexibility flexibility and life experiences. Do we need flexibility as a flexible working policy that says, you know, your work can be flexible, but supported by really good health and wellbeing policies that say, actually, if you're experiencing fertility issues, or you're experiencing menopause, or you're experiencing, you know, whatever the you are experiencing, that they are supported and they, they don't clash. There's no policy, they don't undermine each other, that they are supportive, cohesive policies 
they are understandable, they are accessible, people know where to get them, and they are helpful and supportive. And I think that's probably what we're missing at the moment. And they're consistent as well, because we've got all always in the NHS, we've got some organisations that will be way out in front with this, and we'll have a great set of policies, and a great way of supporting people, and we'll have other organisations that are absolutely nowhere near it. And it shouldn't be the case, you know, you should be able to move around the NHS as a single employer with that single set of supportive policies. So I think often we probably do too much work in isolation. So we look at a health issue um, or we look at a life a life issue um, and then we look at something else over here and we don't bring the two together. Um, and probably, in my view, that might well be because there are issues that predominantly affect women. And so actually, perhaps, you know, despite being um, a, a, a workforce of that 78% women, you know, we don't bring those issues that are affecting women to the fore um, and prioritise them as part of our work, workplace wellbeing strategies and health strategies. Why do you think that is that we don't bring them to the fore just out of interest? Um yeah, I don't. I I think there's probably lots of structural reasons around women's health and women, you know, not feeling that they are able to have conversations. That they actually, we, we have this conversation a lot about menopause. Actually, around, you know, people just not having the language about, you know, talk to talk about menopause in the workplace. I think that there is still a lot with menopause, with fertility, with pregnancy, with periods. There's still a lot of shame, a lot of stigma, a lot of silencing around it. Um, a lot of that's internalised. So maybe we don't even realise that we, you know, we feel like that, but actually, you know, we, we do. They're hard conversations to have. But often for women, you know, they, they may have male managers who they don't feel comfortable talking about, um, you know, those issues with. They may have female managers they don't feel comfortable talking about those issues with. They're all deeply personal, aren't they? They're about the most personal aspects of our health and lives. It takes a big shift in organisational culture and the support that you can expect. So, you know, the support and, and knowledge that people have in organisations to be able to have these conversations in a positive way. So you're not left harmed by them as an employee because actually they can be quite damaging if they're in the wrong way and um, but why I think probably it reflects society more generally about of these issues um, and whilst we're talking about this and we, we mentioned at the start a, a tweet you shared recently about the retention kind of crisis within the NHS and we've talked about that 78% being female within the organisation what would you say would be the ideal to attract and retain women in this field especially when we're talking about one in six couples one in seven individuals being affected by fertility issues so I think it's being much more upfront about this and saying, you know, here are all the things, you know, really putting those, here's how we're going to support you through your lives and being really upfront about that as a as a retention strategy. You know, here's all the things we're going to do for you. Here's how we'll support you if you're experiencing fertility issues. If you're going through that journey of seeking, you know, seeking fertility treatment, here's all the things that we can do to help and support you. You know, and the same with all sorts of other issues as well and, and making it very, you know, very explicit and very open and an upfront part of our retention strategy instead of saying we've got a well-being offer really talking about well what is that you know what is that what can you what can you offer me what can you support me with and I think probably too often we don't we don't say that up front we don't talk about it and I think we we absolutely rely on employees to come to us when they're experiencing something hard um, and tell us about it and then you know and again it's a it, that, that's a real uh it's a power issue as well, isn't it? Because actually then I hold all the impact, all the power as the manager and I just, you know, wait for you to come and talk to me about something rather than going to you and saying, you know, what's going on with you? What's happening with you? You know, is there anything that you need? What can I help you with? What's going on in your life? Can you, you know, talk to me about it? Um, and, you know, let's see what we can do. But uh, still, that seems quite a tough thing for us to, to get right consistently across the NHS or even in individual organisations. 
Kate, you mentioned um, earlier about menopause, and we know in a lot of organisations that menopause has paved the way actually for, t- for fertility education and policies now to come in place, which is amazing. What do you think the NHS is doing well at the minute with regards to supporting women's health? So I think um, really elevate. I think actually menopause is a, is a good example of where the NHS is starting to have much more explicit conversations um, and that's I think that's come about through you know lots of interested individuals and also great work by unions there's been some really good work by unions in supplying you know menopause work doing menopause workshops and in starting those conversations and so I think there's some really good examples of putting um, putting sort of women's health and you know all people who are experiencing menopause and making that part of organizational conversations I suppose there's something for me about, and we've talked about this a lot in our women's network actually, around the the around all the all the sort of experiences that you you may have relating to your um, relating to fertility, pregnancy, periods, um, you know, gynecological health, menopause. So we've tried to look at it from a sort of life cycle kind of perspective, I suppose, and look at all the things that you may experience, and then what are the what support mechanisms you have, um, you know, through each of those. And I guess. We have to be again. It's for me. It's about you know how do we take those conversations? How do we get them into organisations? But how do we get them out of organisations too? So we can have one consistent model across the NHS because that that feels really important to me that you shouldn't have just one brilliant place that does it all really well. Um, because then you know if you leave that brilliant pl- place and you find that actually you are experiencing facility issues but you didn't experience them there because that wasn't part of your life at that moment, um, and then you get you know no support in your other employer. So for me, it's it's starting the conversations and it's getting um, it's getting them then out of the organisations that we're in to have them more broadly. I'm part of something called the Health and Care Women's Leaders Network, which is um, a network of women leaders and male allies across the NHS who do some great work on this. Um, and they also sort of sit as a kind of umbrella above women's networks working in different organisations. And I think they're a great way of getting those networks are a great way of getting sort of active activist individuals involved in these um, in these pieces of work um, to start conversations in their organisations. And I think also in some organisations, it will take a lot of perseverance and <laughs> finding the champions in those organisations. Um, and we say this quite a bit with flexible working, that your champions aren't off, are sometimes not the people that you think they are, um, but they will be there. Um, and it will be the same for, around um, fertility issues. It will be the same for um for for health issues etc um, you'll find people that have lived that experience that will champion it um, who will be influential in your organization and and find them and get them on board because they will help you make change we found haven't we nat in our kind of conversations that it's often those activists those individuals that have obviously have a personal experience of, of fertility or fertility treatment themselves that just feel so passionate about it that they want to change the way their organization deals with it for people coming through it's too late for them but it's for the people coming through behind them that's important we've seen that a lot haven't we Natalie yeah and it's amazing to see it but we also know that a lot of those people might not want to be the educator and that's why we're really excited about this kind of educational piece that we've done with this e-learning to change the cultural understanding and it's really encouraging to hear that there is a keenness and a willingness to learn about these issues and like you say it's just trying to make sure that everybody does the same and I think one of the things that we're doing with the Facility Matters at Work initiative is really educating in an interesting way how diverse this issue is it's not just oh you can't have a baby therefore you need IVF it's what all these different routes to parenthood are and and how they work and it's not just a heterosexual couple it could be a a solo woman it could be a a same-sex couple or a gay individual 
individual. So we've really tried to encompass all those different paths to parenthood. And it's really great to hear that, you know, there is that keenness. It's now just putting the pieces together, isn't it? Definitely. And I think so much of it rests on being on, on exactly what you've described. It's giving people the language to talk about these these issues with the people that they work with. And I think so often these conversations don't happen because, you know, one big because it's really hard to have that conversation if you're the person going through that um, but also because it's really hard to have that conversation if the person you're talking to has no language with which to respond to you or just you know gets it hugely wrong and so you know then then you don't speak about it again because your experience of talking to one person has been so negative um, and I think there is a huge amount of learning for our, for us all um, and you know what, what you're doing sounds really really positive and enabling people to go and find you know, ways of educating themselves and learning about something that maybe they don't have any personal experience of, but then that they can, you know, have compassionate, informed conversations with people around them. Because we've both had experience, haven't we, Kate, of people telling us about a good or a bad line manager. And that's what we want to kind of get past, that it's not dependent on who the person is that you're having that conversation with. Absolutely. And we know from the staff, things like the staff survey, that actually your line manager has, in the NHS, has, there's, you know, tons of evidence to say that they have the biggest impact on you, Um, you know, regardless of your peers and your senior management um that actually it's that person that you interact with as your line manager that has that has that you know and they're they're often in the nhs the most stretched tier of that middle that kind of middle management tier they have you know they have it from all sides they have a huge amount of pressure sort of you know kind of coming down on them they have a huge amount of pressure from the service too Um, and so really supporting and investing in that group of staff i think is fundamental to so much it will unlock so much change in the nhs in a positive way i completely agree kate before i um started working independently my last role was in healthcare management and I totally felt that that stretch from above and and below which sadly was one of the reasons why I decided to leave but what we're hearing time and time again from every single organization that we talk to is the importance of the line manager so I'm, I'm hopeful in time that once we can start doing more and organizations are really sitting up and listening which is great that we will see the change and the education for the line managers because it is super important I think it it, we've talked about it before on the podcast but it's kind of a policy is great but it actually needs to be cultural change so the culture surrounding fertility in the workplace needs to change and and that to me personally I, I believe starts with the line manager absolutely and actually if we took those line managers out or if when you become a line manager because often you get absolutely no training in becoming a line manager whatsoever you're just promoted into that post and expected to be good at it if we really took those people out and invested in them in terms of their training and development around supporting their staff you know with and saying actually if you've got a staff member with who's going through you know fertility issues and is, is is on that journey here's how you have that conversation but we have to be willing to take those people out and invest in them and see the see the value in that and and see how that pays you know how that pays forward over time um, and we should do that so my view is absolutely we should be doing that we should be doing those things and we should actually make you know NHS we should invest more in NHS management you know whatever kind of manager you are whether you're you know a, a matron whether you're a clin- you know clinical manager or a non-clinical manager um, that we should be investing in that way because as you described they hold the key to so much in the, and they hold the power over so many people in the NHS and, and, and their experience is good or bad. Completely agree what's quite interesting is within the fertility community we have this amazing supportive network particularly on Instagram and we have uh, an amazing lady called um, Sophie Martin and on Instagram she's the infertile midwife anyone wants to go and check her out if you don't know her already and obviously it's the name says it on her Instagram handle she's a midwife so she's working within the NHS and sadly she went through 
a, such a traumatic experience of stillbirth of her twin boys. Um, and all the time she was working in the NHS, obviously on maternity leave, but then had to go back to working as a midwife and found that incredibly mm. difficult. How how have you seen people work within this space that having to deal with kind of situations like that on a daily basis? Have you come across this, particularly if they're working in midwifery or infertility? Because we get so many messages and contact from individuals that are struggling with this. Um, so I have, as a, as a manager, and I have um, through through our flex work um, as well around how people can navigate these conversations. And I think it is again, it's being able to have those really personal conversations, isn't it? And for and and also to enable people to if they to come back to work to check in on them and to make sure that they actually they are able to do the job that they're returning to, and that they've got the right support in order to do that. I suppose really all of this comes down to being able to have a a, a good conversation and a meaningful conversation and to keep communication and engagement um, on a sort of personal level going with individuals who are who are going through these experiences because everyone's different aren't they and actually you know we shouldn't put a blanket you know well actually if you've gone through this and you'll be feeling like this at this time um, statement and they're not things that can be dictated by policy yes the policy framework is important um, and it's important because it it supports people's employment rights but actually being able to have bespoke um, individualized plans of care and it's about care isn't it it's about care for employees in the same way we would care for a patient it's about care for our employees as they come back to work and as they navigate through their work when they've been through a traumatic experience you know that's challenging I think for managers and but one we a challenge we have to get to grips with because again the harm we can do to people in getting that wrong is incredible and and awful and compounds what has already been a, a horrific experience so for me the care for our staff has to have parity with the care we provide to our patients because without those staff providing that care we you know we can't we can't provide care to patients so that's fundamental um, and it's but, all coming down to that education piece of understanding what that absolutely. care looks like, what people yeah. need, isn't it? And being able to have the conversation about what do you need. And actually, or you may not know what you need, but here's some things that I've learned that have helped other people. And here's some resources that I can point you in the direction of and take time to have a look at them. And, you know, and so I think it's those things, isn't it? Being able to have all of that at your disposal so that you can direct and support staff in, in as much as you possibly can. And Sophie, as we mentioned, has gone on to have successful treatment and has now had a little baby boy and is still campaigning and doing an amazing job on on Instagram. So definitely do go and and check her out. So in terms of the success of the work you're doing with the Flex NHS and and what we've been talking about in terms of support and kind of openness of the conversation, what advice would you give to anyone listening who is working within the NHS in terms of dealing with this and feeling confident that they could ask for more support? We've talked a lot about knowing what to ask and how to ask. What What would your advice be? It's about knowing your employment rights, know your organisation's policies. So read them because they do provide the basis for decision making. Don't just talk to your line manager, go and talk to your HR team, go and talk to your staff side reps or go and talk to your peer support groups, the networks that you've got, your network. If you've got got networks um, in your organisation, talk to your network members or network chairs. I think use people who are there to support you. Don't think your line manager is your only support and the only person that can um, provide an an answer. 
if you've got a good relationship with your line manager, that's amazing. But actually, there's lots of other people that exist in NHS organisations to help you as an employee. Um, it's you know your manager is not is not the only person. So do use all of those corporate departments like HR or those networks and people in place and in post who can support you too, and use them to help you find information and help you find ways to have good conversations and to whether it's about fertility, whether it's about flexible working, find your advocates and the people that will advocate for you in your organisation. That's really good advice because I think we're it's so easy, isn't it, just to think that it's the line manager. Um, and then and then if you don't, as we see frequently, sadly, with line managers that have no idea about fertility and fertility treatment, it might not necessarily be a positive experience. So to actually to give that advice and to know that there are other avenues to go to where you can get that support, I think is vital. So thank you so much, Kate, for highlighting that. I think you're absolutely right. There are people that advocate, will advocate in your organisation outside your line management structure and 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 find and find them. And I think I think for me, networks in organisations um, are really powerful. Um, so they are usually a group of really interested, invested individuals in um in in issues so if you've got a women's network you know please you know please use that if you haven't got one think about think about founding one in your organization there's lots of support um to do that from um if you go onto the nhs confederation website and look up the healthcare women's leaders network there's support there to be able to do that in your own organization thank you Kay. and it'd be really useful if we can get some of those links maybe we can put them in the show notes for people to direct people because we're always really keen to signpost and as we said you know we hear so many examples of people saying i just kind of took this and my company have said run with it and we know that not everybody might have the confidence or the strength to do this but if you do we want to encourage and signpost you as much as possible so thank you we'll definitely make sure we share those resources thank you well I felt like that was a promising conversation in terms of there's obviously openness to this conversation within the NHS we just need to make sure they know what the conversation looks like don't we yeah and I I agree with you it it does sound hopeful I think because the NHS is such a big organization and as Kate says there's pockets of different NHS services doing different things across the country it will be tricky to kind of get it working in a more cohesive way and not impossible, but it, it could take quite a long time. But at least there's hope for the future. Got to start somewhere. Totally. And I think that whole point about the different resources, and we will make sure that there's links for you in the show notes. If you don't feel you can go directly to your line manager, some of those other places that Kate was highlighting, and you know maybe you do feel that it's something that you want to set up and push yourself. We know that's not the ideal, and often you don't want to have to be the educator, but maybe you know this is something that you once you've had a bit of time to think about it, you you could you could do, or maybe with some of your colleagues, if you've had conversations, you'd feel stronger and but more capable of doing something like that I mean the examples that we've seen is people have just felt so empowered by the fact that once they've shared their story and other people have come to them it's kind of given them more strength to push on and put those resources in place and that support that peer support in place that we know is so effective and beneficial don't we yeah totally and I think that the organizations that are doing well do have those peer support groups and as Kate was mentioning the network support groups as well which is fantastic so yeah let's keep our fingers crossed on this one So make sure you check out the show notes. We'll put Kate's details there about her Flex NHS Twitter account where you can see what she's up to and and get in touch with her. It looks like it's been making a massive amount of progress and there's all sorts of different topics that they are obviously kind of championing and and raising awareness of. The other thing that's happening this week, if you're listening to this podcast in real time, as in the week it's come out, which is Monday the 6th of December, is Thursday 
the 9th of December, Fertility Matters at Work is doing another webinar explaining all about how it can support you in the workplace. I'll be there, Kate will be there. And if you can join us, there will be a link in the show notes. So we hope to see you there. Meanwhile, you can get in touch with me at Fertility Poddy. And me at Your Fertility Nurse. And be sure to follow at Fertility Matters at Work so that you know all that's going on with this conversation. Thank you so much for your support. And until the next time, 